गुड मॉर्निंग इट्स ट्यूजडे द ट्वेंटी फेब्रुवरी एंड दिस इज गोविंद राज एथिराज ब्रॉडकास्टिंग फ्रॉम मुंबई इंडिया फाइनेंशियल कैपिटल अटॉप स्टोरीज एंड थीम्स फॉर द डे इंडियन मार्केट राइज फॉर द फिफ्थ कंजेक्यूटिव सेशन कुड पॉज फॉर ब्रेथ द मेग्निफिसेंट सेवन टेक्स स्टॉक्स टू पावर एस एन पी फाइव हंड्रेड प्रॉफिट इन ट्वेंटी It's 50 years of Bombay High, India's biggest crude producing field. Why global pharmaceutical multinationals are leaving India. And Dubai airport traffic crosses pre-pandemic levels, the maximum passengers are to India. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. Indian markets rise for the fifth session. Equity markets were strong again and close to record highs after the Nifty 50 touched a new high of 22,187 in Monday's trade, closing finally 82 points higher at 22,122, while the BSE Sensex rose 282 points to close at 72,708. The indices ended higher for the fifth consecutive session on Monday, usually a sign that the markets might pause to take in some air. December quarter earnings are now over and the focus is back on macroeconomic news, maybe even political news, including of course on the macroeconomic front that is interest rates in the United States which are not going down anytime soon. Goldman revises S&P growth on AI booster Meanwhile on Wall Street Goldman Sachs raised its year-end target for the benchmark S&P or Standard & Poor's 500 to 5200 a 4% increase from current levels citing an improved earnings outlook for the index companies according to Reuters now why that earnings outlook has been increased is what is important and I'll come to that earlier Goldman had said the index would end 2024 at 5100 before raising the forecast from 4700 in December thanks to cooling inflation and expectations of the central bank in the united states that is easing rates in the year now here's the reason the tech play is actually getting stronger as goldman analysts are saying that the earning strength of mega cap stocks including those in the magnificent seven tech stocks that include meta google amazon and nvidia would boost aggregate s&p 500 profits in 2024 Goldman analysts said that the growth in artificial intelligence and consumer strength is expected to propel revenue growth alongside margin expansion and thus forecasting an overall 8% profit increase for S&P 500 companies this year thanks also to an improved US economic outlook and stronger mega cap profit margins if this translates into a stronger stock market obviously other markets will benefit as well Though other analysts as we discussed yesterday are also sounding the early alarm bells on high valuations. It's 50 years of Bombay High. First a look at oil markets right now. Oil fell from the highest level in 3 weeks over continuing concerns over the demand outlook offsetting ongoing Middle Eastern tensions according to Bloomberg. Brent crude was below $83 a barrel after rising around 8% in the last 2 weeks. Now, the interesting oil story is this one. Bombay High or now Mumbai High produces about 70% of India's crude oil and gas. Though India to put things in context imports over 85% of its crude oil or therefore only produces 15% of the crude oil that's consumed for refining in India. 
But the story that I am referring to goes back to 1974, a time the world was still reeling with an oil crisis and supply constraints. The Oil and Natural Gas Commission set up in 1955 to join companies like Oil India Limited to hunt for oil for India had launched its offshore exploration effort about 90 nautical miles or 160 kilometers off Mumbai coast that's in the Arabian Sea. The first foray into the seas to drill oil was thanks to a Japanese-built drill ship called Sagar Samrat or translated Emperor of the Seas. The ship began drilling on this day and the story is obviously this. It's 50 years of Bombay or Mumbai high. Now, most of those oil fields in that region have actually gone out of production and overall production in these fields has peaked. Just to go back, the Mumbai High Field, previously like I said, the Bombay High Field was discovered in February 1974 by a Russian and Indian team from the seismic exploration vessel Academic Arkan Jelsky while mapping the Gulf of Cambay. Full production started in May 1976 as I could see and a subsea pipeline was laid in 1978 to take the oil from the field to refineries in Mumbai. Until then, oil was shipped in tankers. Today the reserves at Mumbai High can produce for some more years, but the plan according to the company is to invest in redevelopment. ONGC chairman and CEO Arun Kumar Singh said that they were committed to intensified production plans and significant investments for exploration, expressing hope for discovering a new field akin to Mumbai High soon, even as he reiterated ONGC's commitment to exhaustively explore every opportunity within Mumbai High until to quote him every last drop of oil was recovered. Why pharma multinationals are leaving India. It's actually an interesting contradiction when you look at it. India is the most populated country in the world. More Indians are susceptible to non-communicable diseases that's now increasingly ever than before. Spend on healthcare including hospitals and medicine is rising and yet some of the biggest global names in pharmaceuticals from Novartis to Sanofi among others are either getting out or downsizing. Actually this did not happen overnight though the latest to announce a strategic look or relook at its business is Novartis. Novartis India in an exchange filing has said that the board has taken note of a communication received from Novartis AG its promoter saying it was conducting a strategic review to unlock value of their shareholding in the Indian subsidiary. Now Novartis AG a Swiss headquartered company has held a 71% stake in Novartis India. Dr Reddy's is already rumored to be interested in the business and its stock price that's Dr Reddy's stock price hit a 52 week high on Monday. So why is all of this happening? The reason principally is that most pharma multinationals do not have drugs that they can effectively compete with Indian pharmaceutical companies who've become over the years large and more so in very recent years. As drugs have gone off patent, Indian companies have jumped in and started producing more economically and at scale. Selling drugs also involves large marketing and field forces and adhering to for the pharma MNCs global standards which they found difficult including at the manufacturing stage. So while the market itself is growing their share of healthcare spend has been falling. Novartis for example has a diabetes drug Galvis which is now marketed and distributed by Cipla but it went off patent in December 2019 which means other manufacturers could start making it which they did over 15 of them resulting in prices falling by almost 70% or so then that's about 5 years ago Galvis is the brand name but the drug is Vildagliptin 
Now, the brand still has life though. Last year, Novartis signed a deal with Cipla, which allowed Cipla to take over manufacturing and marketing in a perpetual agreement starting January 2026. In February 2022, Novartis entered into a sales and distribution agreement with Dr. Redtree's Laboratories to promote and distribute Voviran, Calcium and Methagene in India. Now, these are some brands, again, you would have heard of. But at the same time, some 400 jobs were also lost in Novartis. This is in India, of course. A few weeks later, Novartis sold its cardiovascular brand, Sidmus, to Dr. Reddy's Laboratories and then sold another cardiac trademark, Asmarda, to JB Chemicals. A year later, Novartis sold 15 ophthalmology brands to JB Chemicals for about 1,000 crore rupees. Sheetal Saple of PharmaTrack, the pharma intelligence company, tells me that MNCs are usually sticking to core super speciality businesses, which are quite small, and exiting from many others, as in the case of Novartis, or for that matter, Sanofi. The interesting thing, to the point on opportunity, she says, is that Indian pharma MNCs barely contribute 1% of the global turnover of major pharmaceutical companies. Glivec, the anti-cancer drug, is another example. India's Supreme Court dismissed Novartis AG's attempt to win patent protection for Glivec, setting a benchmark for intellectual property cases in India. But this happened in 2013, if you're trying to understand the history of why pharma MNCs have found the going tough. Sanofi is another example. In 2021, it sold its nutraceuticals business to Universal Nutriscience, an Indian company. The same year, it sold a more than 50-year-old brand, Soframycin, a name that must be familiar to you, to a company called N-Cube Ethicals, which had been contract manufacturing Soframycin skin cream for over 20 years. GSK or GlaxoSmithKline is an exception of sorts. Its brands Betnovate and Augmentin do well, but are under price control. But the company has been shrinking in staff across departments and it sold a manufacturing unit, for example, in 2021. Now, there are other examples, but the larger point is that the Indian pharmaceutical market is not what it might seem, at least for overseas drug giants. I also reached out to Murli Neelakantan, a keen observer of the pharmaceutical industry in India, and also earlier CIPLA's first global general counsel and later a director and global general counsel at Glenmark in 2017-18. And I began by asking him the first broad question, why pharma MNCs were exiting India? You know, we can think of this in three or four different questions. The first one is they only want to be in geographies where they have size and some significant market power. If you think of it from that standpoint, in India, most of the MNC subsidiaries are focused on a few therapy areas, but that means they're limited to and buy their own products. It all begins with patented drugs, which in the Indian market tend to be expensive and niche. When there are generics, those are generics of their own patented drugs. So patent runs out, generics come into the market, and these companies continue to deliver generics of those patented drugs. That will continue to do well in therapy areas where there is low competition. Or you have niche segments like devices or insulin. Or if it is purely institutional sales where you sell to hospitals primarily rather than the retail. So in these kind of areas, they will do well. But what we are up against is Indian competition, which have bigger and perhaps better marketing teams. The MNCs have to deal with compliance risks, I think, the Indian companies know how to deal with that compliance issue. Indian Pharma has a better portfolio to compete with the MNCs. And fundamentally, from a market perspective, a new molecule in India in a particular category 
doesn't replace the old molecules like in other countries. So if when you bring a new product to India, it doesn't mean it quickly replaces all the old products. In fact, what happens is it takes a long time for that new product to find its space in the market, by which time you will have generic competition. And then it's a very small window, a very niche market for those new molecules. So that is the state of the market. Then you might think, okay, it must be cheaper to manufacture in India. And therefore, they should have a reason to do business in India. Actually, again, if you look at these players, they've largely been importing the new drugs. They haven't been manufacturing many of the new drugs here. In fact, my own sense is that we have fewer manufacturing facilities created by these MNCs in recent years. And in fact, we've seen more disposals than establishment of new facilities by these MNCs. So clearly, they're not thinking of India as a manufacturing hub for pharma. So what are they doing? They're probably going for contract manufacturing where they have to manufacture in India for the Indian market, which is Indian quality at Indian costs. And that means they have a leaner corporate structure, easier compliance. So even when they are manufacturing domestically for the domestic market, more likely to be contract manufacturing. I had a quick look at the profit numbers and the revenue numbers for some of the you know, leading MNCs. And I realized that these are Q3 numbers, so the latest numbers. They had, you know, a small decimal point on the total revenues and profits of their parents. So again, they're not significant from a profit perspective, from a revenue perspective, from a market perspective. It creates a lot of corporate overheads, corporate structure, hierarchy, all for a very, very small profit. So what are they doing? You know, yes, this is all what's happening. I think we're seeing a lot more of licensing. And that does two things. One, it's very easy from a compliance perspective, you're just collecting money. It's very easy. You don't have to create a corporate structure. You don't have to hire people. You don't have to deal with tax. You don't have to deal with the pharma regulator. You don't have to deal with any of this. So you're making about the same amount of money without being in the market. And also it's a defense against patent challenges, which I think the MNC pharma companies are worried of. So if you think of it in these five categories of size of market, sales and marketing, manufacturing, strategy, which is profits, and then just how significant they are or not, and licensing. You've got the story, I think. And Murli, is there a, a drug or a single drug which perhaps illustrates this whole transition that's happened from any company that comes to mind? No. The first time I thought of this, what, 10 years ago, when I spoke about it, that the change of structure when it comes to global pharma. And the drug at that time was the breakthrough drug for hepatitis C by a company called Gilead. And the drug itself was called Sofospermate. And it was the only cure for hepatitis C. It was sold at $1,000 a pill in the United States. So the course would be $84,000 or thereabouts. And clearly, that's no point bringing that to India. When they filed for a patent, there was a patent opposition. So there was a risk that they might really not be able to patent the drug in India. Instead, they decided to license it. And we got inexpensive drugs without Gilead having to roll it out in India from six Indian pharmaceutical companies of whom would have opposed the patent. So, you know, we're going back 10 years and this is the story. And you looked at many other drugs, the blockbuster drugs that you have overseas. They've been licensed to companies like Lupin, to Red East, many others. So I think we're seeing how the global pharma is formulating a strategy for India 
based on hard numbers. Right. And, you know, I mean, there are reports now, which are obviously unconfirmed, that Dr. Reddy's might be bidding for this Novartis unit or the Novartis business that's in India. And that perhaps uh, illustrates exactly what you're saying, that Dr. Reddy's, who already works with them, is uh, in a good position to take it forward. So you did say that niche is an area that still works. And when you say niche, what niche would that be? Is that niche in terms of price or very specific products? Products, perhaps. So a good example is uh, Johnson & Johnson with their devices. Another good example is Novo with insulin products. So, you know, you don't really have a lot of competition in that market, in those two markets. So where you have the J&J products, not really, you know, 10 Indian players with significant market shares. And, you know, everybody is in a fragmented market. That's not the case. So where they have leadership in the category in that therapy area and competition is so far away, it's almost invisible. I think there they will continue to be in India. In other places, they really don't think they will want to be in India. It's a very difficult uh, market to be in. Margins are not great. Competition is very high. And the other reasons like R&D and manufacturing don't exist. So, you know, it's a really difficult one, except if you have uh, market leadership in each category and in each product. While everything you say adds up to it, I mean, let me still pose the, you know, the sort of counterfactual question or the counterintuitive question rather, which is that India is still a big market. Healthcare spends are growing. Share of pocket will keep increasing and lifestyle diseases are increasing, which likely may see more spends and more requirement for drugs. So why is it that, again, all these companies are walking away? So it comes, it's a very good question and think of it. So if you look at uh, diabetes, you have so many drugs which are similar to each other. You know, if you look at gliptins, you have half a dozen of them. If you look at glyphosins, you have half a dozen of them. If you go to CV, the number of statins you have are plenty. So adding another new version of a gliptin or a statin is not going to get you significant market share. And we've seen that. So even when new drugs are introduced, the old drugs continue to dominate the market. And the Indian players who are the generics, either individual drugs or with combinations, will dominate that market. So even though you may have a blockbuster drug overseas, bringing it to India, it becoming even a 100 crore brand. How many 100 crore brands do you have in India? Not many. And who are these 100 crore brands? It's like Volini is a 100 crore brand. So you know, you're looking at that category, not at you know what is the next big cardiovascular drug or hypertension, diabetes, any of those drugs. We're not seeing them as blockbuster drugs. So yes, the market is growing, but the market is growing in such a way that the patented MNC drug is a small fraction of it. Unless you come with a breakthrough drug. You know, that's why I took the example of Safosfovir. There was no competition to that at the time. The alternative was liver transplant. Obviously, it's not going to be viable to say, okay, we'll compete with sofosbovir and the liver transplant will be at the same price as sofosbovir. So, and there aren't that many livers available for transplant. So what you're competing with is almost nothing. Even in those circumstances, that drug was not introduced at that significant price in India. They decided to license it at a price that was a fraction of what was being sold elsewhere in the world. So there are many reasons for them to do it. On the issue of price, if they sell the product by themselves in India, or they license it at a price that they decide, then that becomes a reference price for other markets as well. 
So they have to be very careful that they can't sell it very cheap in India. Because other countries are going to say, listen, if you can sell it in India for, you know, $1, why can't you sell it to us for $1? Why are you charging $1,000? So these are all the practical issues that large MNCs have with introducing products in India. Right. Uh, Murli, we run out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Dubai Airport pulls the maximum number of passengers from India. If you want to understand why the Indian government is not giving more seats to airlines like Emirates, it is this. Dubai is pulling more and more passengers from, and I guess to India, even as it crossed its pre-pandemic peak of traffic. Dubai International Airport, the Reuters has reported, the world's busiest international airport hub has registered a 32% increase in passenger traffic last year to about 87 million surpassing pre-pandemic levels. This compares to about 86 million passengers flying through the airport in 2019 before obviously COVID-19 brought things to a halt. Dubai is connected to 262 destinations across 104 countries through 102 international carriers, according to Dubai Airport. Dubai is obviously a large tourism and trade hub in the Middle East. Now, here's the interesting point. India was Dubai's top destination country in terms of traffic with close to 12 million passengers last year, followed by Saudi Arabia with 6.7 million, Britain with 5.9 million and Pakistan with 4.2 million. Dubai Airports has said it has now forecast Dubai would receive about 89 million passengers in 2024, putting it in close proximity to its record high of about 89 million set in 2018, according to Reuters. That's it from me for today. See you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>